So in the Old Testament, there's this story that we just read about this guy Naboth, the Jezreelite. Um, Jezreel, if you don't know, was this ancient Israelite fortress city. It's mentioned in 1 Kings and a couple other places. It's part of the tribe of Issachar. Remember, there are 12 tribes um, in the northern kingdom. And there's actually a modern archaeological site there, a dig. It's, it's situated on this low hill on the eastern edge of the Jezreel Valley, Valley which was an important agricultural region in the north of Israel back then. It still is. These are a few of the things they've uncovered there. It's hard to see up in the, in the distance, but it's this big valley with the green lands. And um, King Ahab had a royal palace there in Jezreel. And the story goes that Ahab, he had the, his place was adjacent to the vineyard of this man Naboth. And King Ahab wanted to expand the palace gardens, so he tried to buy Naboth's vineyard from him. Now, if you're like me, you have been trained in American capitalism, and so the first thing you're thinking is, kings pay top dollar, man. Like, go for it here. Gouge the king, make a killing, and go live somewhere else. Um, but Naboth doesn't think that way. He, he says this, the Lord forbid that I should give you my ancestral inheritance. And this phrase, ancestral inheritance, turns out to be really important. If you remember, um, the children of Israel came out of Egypt proclaiming that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that brought them out of Egypt, and the God who was the creator of everything, was the same God. And as the creator of the world, the creator gets to set the terms for creation. Like an artist who writes a song gets to set the terms for the use of that song. Unless a record label gets involved, we can talk about that later. But... <laughs> And the part that human beings should play in this was really spelled out for them in the book of Genesis. And I, we talk about this a lot. God said the human vocation is be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over it, show leadership over it. And then it says till it and keep it, like protect it, cause it to flourish and to bear fruit, right? That's the vocation. When they settled in the promised land, the Israelites had this vocation in mind. They split up the land into to a little bit of territory for every tribe, and then every family within each tribe was given their own little piece of the land, their own piece of land to till and keep and have dominion over and to cause it to flourish. And so this idea of ancestral inheritance or ancestral land, it, it's really important for them. I mean, this is their little piece of the promised land. This is a sacred obligation, a sign that they were actually fulfilling the human vocation. Um, obeying God's terms for the use of the world. So very early on, the Hebrew people were taught that their little ancestral inheritance, their piece of the land, was to be treated always with reverence. They should have reverence for it because it is the land is, is the source of life. Their, their story, actually their creation story, told them that the very first humans had been made by God out of land, out of the dirt, the dust of the earth. The land itself then existed to sustain the people in their highest calling, which was to be the one piece of the earth, the piece of dirt that actually bears the image of God to the rest of the world. So, so to the Hebrew mind, caring for the land, making sure it was well regulated according to principles of, you could say, stewardship versus exploitation, this was of paramount importance for them. 
And so the land was to be cared for, but it was also to be shared equitably and stewarded carefully so that everyone who was alive could take part in the human vocation of tilling and keeping and seeking peace. And everyone would have enough to flourish on and, and to live on, to be, have a place to, you know, a roof over their head and food to eat. And they were to stave off the threat of chaos. Remember from the very beginning in the, the, the waters of chaos, to stave off the chaos by organizing the land, showing leadership over it. And they're supposed to stave off the barrenness, the other threat by tilling the earth, causing it to bear fruit. And the idea was, if the earth was taken care of, right, and the people and the land together, um, then would flourish and be sustained and, and come to embody this idea of shalom, everything in its rightful place, God's peace. And so the kingdom, or, or the children of Israel, they, they had this deep connection to the land. And it wasn't just economics or ownership, or agriculture. It was about getting in on the promises of God and their whole long story of what it meant to be human. And so it, it's sacred to them. That in, It's so sacred that in the Jewish law, if you had lost your land through calamity or death or something, every 50 years, whoever had it, had to give it back to your family because your family had to have a place in that, in that land, had to be returned in the year of Jubilee. It wasn't just like a homestead. This is a sacred trust. And so Naboth here rightly refuses to turn this over to even to a king. And a good king would have seen this faithfulness and said, yeah, that's, that's probably right. Turns out Ahab is not exactly what you would call a good king. Um, in fact, Israel's, uh, the, the stipulations for what it means to be a good king are written in the law in, in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Let me read this to you. One of your own community you may set as king over you. You are not permitted to put a foreigner over you who is not of your own community. This was not a, a racist or you know, anti-immigration thing. They were actually like, charged with taking care of their immigrants. And it was little things like that. Why, that's why you couldn't have a foreigner over you. Because you needed somebody who knew what Israel was about, knew their story. Um, he must not acquire many horses for himself, it says, or return the people to Egypt in order to acquire more horses. He must not acquire many wives for himself, else his heart will turn away. Also, silver and gold he must not acquire in great quantity for himself. He shall have a copy of this law written for him in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall remain with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, diligently observing all the words of this law, and these statutes, neither exalting himself above other members of the community, nor turning aside from the commandment. So, so it basically says three things. The king has to be a brother, not a foreigner, who doesn't start acquiring things like horses. Horses, if you remember, are they're tanks in, in the ancient world. So don't build a huge army and certainly don't go to, to Egypt to get it. Don't, don't go hoarding all the good wives or the material wealth. And then three, most importantly, the king had to be a student of their law, an expert, you could say, on God's terms for the right use of the world and the organization of the community. And so a king has to, has to know these things and model faithfulness to those terms. And Ahab here, he's breaking almost all of these requirements. He's acting like a foreigner. He's marrying a foreign wife here. He ignores the law. He's collecting like palaces and vineyards like trading cards. He's got his main place up in Samaria, another one down in, in Jezreel at lower, um, lower elevation, so it's, it's nice and, and cool in the, the summer. 
and lots of forts and lands under his control, but that's not enough. Now he wants Naboth's vineyards. And it says he wants it so he can make a vegetable garden, which to us, we're like, okay. But for the, the um, Hebrew children, they, they would have understood this is, this is not okay. Um, the land of Israel is a place where vineyards grow naturally and their ability to grow grapes and, and have wine from it. This was like a source of pride. And over the years became a source of identity. In fact, the vineyard became a symbol for the nation of Israel and, and a symbol of God's blessing. So to convert a vineyard which is the apex of what you can have, into a vegetable garden, it was a taboo. It just wasn't done for them. And Jewish readers would have immediately picked up on that. So when Naboth says, Lord forbid, he's not like being profane. He's saying, God forbid that I would ever go back on my sacred, sacred obligation to this land. Because he knew that it's like the land didn't belong to Naboth. Naboth belonged to the land. That's how he saw it. And so he told Ahab, no. And then it says, Ahab went home resentful and sullen. He lay down on his bed, turned away his face, and would not eat. And then in came Jezebel, his wife. She takes one look at the king. like, what is the matter with you? And Ahab told her about this man Naboth in the vineyard. And Jezebel said, that's what you're upset about? Naboth's vineyard? And she says, get up, eat some food, and I'll get you what you want. And so the queen, Jezebel, wrote invitations in Ahab's name, sealed them with the king's seal, um, effectively here, by the way, usurping the king's power. She's acting with the king's seal. That's usurping his power. So, so a pagan is running Israel's show here. And she's commanded, um, in that she commands these low-level officials over Jezreel to have a feast under the pretense that they have some kind of civic or religious matters to discuss. This was their custom. They would, if some issue needed settling in their community, they would have a feast and talk it through. Um, but this is a setup. She, she had these scoundrels, which is a great word that we should use much more often, keep scoundrels in, in play. Um, she has scoundrels accuse Naboth of cursing God which is like the very opposite of what he's actually doing. And so they accuse him. It's a sham of a trial, and they kill Naboth. And then Jezebel comes to Ahab and says, go take Yaras' possession of the vineyard of Naboth. And it's written in a way that it's the exact same phrase used in Numbers when God tells him to take possession of the promised land. God says, you shall take Yaras' possession of the land and settle in it. So what Naboth is doing is directly against God's plans for the promised land here and for what it means to be a leader and a king over Israel. So he's failing as a leader and failing in the management of the land. Now, um, Jezebel takes a lot of heat for this and other stories, um, and she's clearly in the wrong. But you have to remember, Jezebel's father was... Um, a pagan king. He was the king of Tyre. So she grew up in a royal palace where kings could do pretty much anything they wanted to do. And she doesn't know Israel's history with Yahweh or, or God's plans for the land. She doesn't know God's terms for leadership. Um, she doesn't know any of the laws and customs that God has put in place to keep the people of God from forgetting about their obligation to the land. Right? And all the laws and customs that are there, she doesn't know any of that stuff. And so you can't really blame Jezebel 
um, for doing what she did. She's doing what royalty did back then. And yet, um, in this story, um, everything that God was trying to avoid in the law comes to pass. God's instructions were ignored. The office of king is usurped by a foreigner. Neighbor turns against neighbor in this dinner. Justice is perverted by these scoundrels. A solemn kind of religious and civic rite of sitting together to decide how to do things becomes a sham trial filled with perjury and then followed by murder. And in the end, the government of Israel, the official government, becomes twisted in order to favor the rich over the poor. And, and to use the land, not to serve the common good, but to serve the affluent. And this is a story that's often told as a cautionary tale about poor leadership and the abuse of power, which it is, for sure. But I think there's a sense in which it's also a story about the mistreatment of the land itself. About a basic lack of reverence for the earth, for creation that somehow the land is worthy of reverence, that it's supposed to unite us together as one and, and sustain us, provide for us. We've been talking about reverence for these weeks. Um, we started with reverence um, for the other and then reverence for God last week. And this week, we're thinking about reverence for the land, and, and that's why I'm telling this story. I think it has something to teach us about what God expects for the organization of the world and the stewardship of the earth around these two ideas of exploitation versus stewardship. And it's a story of what happens when people exploit the earth and each other, just simply taking what they want and organizing their society then um, and, and the land without reference to God and God's intention. God's intention for the way that the earth should be used. And so in this story, um, each of these characters sort of play a part, Naboth, Jezebel, and Ahab. And these parts have deep symbolic meaning. In fact, if you mention those names in a, in a Hebrew context, they would know these names and know what they symbolize. Naboth is a symbol of reverence for God and for the, for the land, and for the land, the, or the role the land is supposed to play in, in his life that it's essential to human life. It gets him in on the promise. It's, it's a reverence for his vocation as uh, part of the people of God to keep and care for the earth. Jezebel is seen as just a, kind of a symbol of exploitation, shallow exploitation, really just the way most of the cultures of the earth treat the land. They don't know God's terms for the use of the land, so they use it however they feel. And Ahab... Ahab is, is, is the one I want to focus on because I, I think if we see Ahab in a certain way, this can push us a little bit in the way we see our own lives. I, I think Ahab is a symbol of us in this story, all of us, because Ahab actually had the power to make sure the land was used wisely, and he didn't do it. He abdicated his power to Jezebel, who did not know how to use it wisely. But he did this because she promised to get him what he wanted. A nicer house, a bigger garden, you know, a more fabulous life. I think this is the trade that we're all tempted to make. And there's a sense in which 
This story is about what happens anytime the people of God abdicate responsibility for the use of the land to those who do not know God's terms for the wise use of creation of the world. And, and what I want to suggest is that the reason Ahab didn't step in here and stop the exploitation of Naboth in his land was kind of a basic lack of reverence for the earth and what it's meant to do in our lives. He wanted more stuff, better stuff. Ahab had forgotten that caring for creation and managing it justly and wisely is part of the human vocation. And I say this, you know, with great embarrassment in my own complicity. But it seems to me that, you know, to a great degree, we have all done essentially the same thing with the land in our time. We've abdicated power over the use of the land, the world of creation. We've abdicated to a bunch of leaders who clearly don't care about the wise use of creation, or at least don't care about God's terms for how to organize the world. So when you and I um, see on the news or read on the news stories about pollution, the abuse of the environment, or climate change, and what this, this is doing to things, it's very easy for us to go, that's just like beyond my pay grade and really too complicated. Um, and, and so we either just kind of look the other way or throw our hands up in despair, um, or just kind of act as though we are powerless to make a difference. We do what Ahab did, which is to sort of hand power to a bunch of people who have been shaped by a different narrative than the, the narrative of Scripture, a narrative of exploitation, not stewardship. And so we end up just kind of watching as governments and corporations tear up the planet, organizing and structuring societies and whole economies in such a way that the value of everything can be given a dollar amount, and then structuring things so that those dollar amounts seem to just like move their way up to the top of the pyramid. All of us then kind of consuming without limits, hooked on growth and consumption. And when we allow this to happen, and by the way, I'm going to say it again, like I'm not saying you, I'm saying we, this is all of us. This is the world we participate in. When we allow this to happen, though, as Christians, we kind of make ourselves like King Ahab, who got his summer garden, but at what cost? And I think that if we'll let it, this can reveal to us a basic lack of reverence for creation and the role it's meant to play in our lives. I remember years back hearing about this book by a writer named Harry Codhill. He wrote a book called Night Comes to the Cumberlands. And um, it's a history of the coal fields of the Cumberland Plateau in eastern Kentucky. Um, this is like the wilderness where Daniel Boone became famous and a lot of those pioneers. Just these beautiful jagged hills and narrow winding valleys. More than um, 10,000 square miles of land so rich in wildlife and timber and coal and other minerals that hundreds of thousands of people lived there for more than a century without even really a strain on the resources of the land. I mean, people were rich. 
who lived there, the settlers and, and the small communities. They weren't rich in like monetary uh, resources, but they, were, they lived rich lives, you could say, with plenty to eat, plenty of work to do, and these, these deep ties of community and culture. And then they discovered coal. And the coal companies came and started mining. And within half a century, under the influence of these big coal corporations, some of the richest land on earth in terms of natural resources became inhabited almost entirely by people who were living in desperate poverty. And Codhill wrote, wrote this book to say, do you see the tension here? The people living in the best land, the richest land ever, are living, are among the most poor people in, in our entire society. And, and the book, was, it was a big deal in the 60s. And it attracted a lot of attention. Um, during his presidential run, uh, JFK went there and made speeches. And so what happened is um, the war on poverty came to Kentucky. And this meant lots of government money and lots of help, and they actually did some good. And yet, you know, like 50, 60 years later, the result of it all was that the people were still poor and the land was just completely depleted of its resources. Not just the coal, but the fish and the wildlife were suffering, the cropland and much of its natural beauty. And this is sort of a classic example of what happens when the earth comes under the control of people who have been shaped by a narrative of exploitation instead of stewardship. Problems emerge. And it's not just an issue of economic policy. It's an issue of the use, the wise use of the land. And one of the lessons that I think we might take from this story of the Cumberland Plateau is just that the fate of human beings and communities is connected to the fate of their land. It just is. This is, this is a basic maxim that has theological force behind it. We cannot expect people to flourish if we're destroying the land underneath their feet because the fate of human beings and human communities is connected to the fate of the land on which they live. And so if the land flourishes, then people flourish. And if the land is abused and exploited, then so will be the people who live on it. And in the suburbs where we live, we can obscure this reality. And we, we can say, I don't know if that's true. Like, we're kind of abusing the land, and we're all rich. But what we do is we push all the exploitation and abuse to the urban core of the city and distance ourselves from it. And we call it their problem. And we forget that our lives are joined by the land that we share. And if the land is abused and exploited, then you can be certain that somewhere people and human communities are paying that price. Um, you guys know I have a thing for Wendell Berry, and most of what I've learned about this kind of stuff comes from, from him. Who he, he lives, by the way, in Kentucky and lives this reality and has his whole life. But he's taught me a lot about this relationship between human communities and the land on which they live and the way those things affect one another. He, he wrote this a long time ago in this essay called The Native Hill. I want to read this. He says, We have lived by the assumption that what was good for us would be good for the world. And this has been based on the even flimsier assumption that we could know with any certainty 
what was good even for us. We have fulfilled the danger of this by making our personal pride and greed the standard of our behavior toward the world to the incalculable disadvantage of the world and every living thing in it. We have been wrong, he says. We must change our lives so that it will be possible to live by the contrary assumption that what is good for the world will be good for us. And that requires that we make the effort to know the world and to learn what is good for it. We must learn to cooperate in its processes and yield to its limits. We must abandon arrogance and stand in awe. We must recover the sense of the majesty of creation and the ability to be worshipful in its presence. For I do not doubt that it is only on the condition of humility and reverence before the world that our species will be able to remain in it. There's that word reverence. And I don't know, I read this probably more than 10 years ago, and it kind of, kind of haunts me <laughs> what he says here, that we've lived by this flawed assumption that, well, Whatever's good for us will end up being good for the world. And he says, if we're going to have a future, we have to reverse that. And, and realize kind of a more, and he, you know, he's a Christian, a more biblical view of this is what's good for the world is what's good for us. And this should give us a sense of reverence for the earth. That as he recommends, if we'll cooperate with it, if we'll learn its processes, the land around us will become our teacher, which seems to be part of what God had in mind from the very beginning. And so we must make an effort to know the world, to actually know what is good for it, because what's good for the world will be good for us and for human communities in the long run. And, and Wendell Berry says it all begins with a sense of reverence for creation. Now, I don't think we need to all become like experts in land management or, or the environment, environmental science or wildlife, wildlife conservation. But we could just start by admitting that there is hardly anybody whose job it is to study the earth who isn't warning everyone who will listen that large swaths of the earth's delicately interwoven ecosystems are experiencing strain and exhaustion at best, and at worst, are in the process of outright collapse. We could start there. Everybody whose job it is to know what's going on is trying to warn us that what's going on is not good, right? Nature is suffering greatly under human exploitation and mismanagement and a general lack of human care. And we can't wash our hands of this. It affects all of us. And I know this is difficult to hear because it's difficult for me to hear and to say. Um, and it's even more difficult to know how to respond because, you know, what can we do? But Barry says the place to begin is just you start here with a sense of reverence for the earth. Just cultivate that and we'll see, we'll see where that goes. A reverence for the idea that our fate is connected to the fate of the planet. And so we need to learn what's happening. 
in the collective use of the world. We need to be informed. We need to have a voice in what's going on. And the sad reality is, and this is, I blame pastors and churches, not you, but I, mostly pastors. The sad reality is most of us don't know how to speak about the land as Christians. We know how to speak about land and stuff or the environment, but not as Christians. Um, and so what, we, what ends up happening is we kind of defer to ideologies, conservative or liberal or whatever, on environmental issues. And that's, that's the, the Ahab move that I'm trying to say. I, I think we could do better than that. We, we shouldn't abdicate our role as, as stewards because the result of that, we can kind of see it's, it's been the exploitation of creation that leads somewhere to the exploitation of people. And we need, to, we need to find a way to stop blaming and rendering ourselves powerless and, and to take up our own responsibility. And any time this happens where the, the earth is exploited, human poverty and suffering comes in its wake. If you don't believe me, read about Eastern Kentucky or just read about the, you know, the standards of living in the Middle East. God has not abdicated God's rights concerning the earth. You know, we have dominion, but we don't have ownership of the world. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. We are accountable for its use. And I don't even care what you believe about like global warming, if you believe it's true or not, or if you think humans are a primary cause or not. That's really beside the point. Stewardship of the land is a sacred obligation. Just like Naboth. And if the land is being exploited and harmed, that's on all of us. And so we can't abdicate this to you know, governments and corporations because they don't know the story that we know. They don't have the knowledge. They don't know God's terms for the wise use of the world. And so I, I don't think this should be about becoming, you know, environmentalist or part of that, uh, any kind of political movement. It's about being a Christian, part of this story. We, we shouldn't stand idly by and, and watch people carelessly exploit and destroy what is, what is a gift to us. God will eventually move against that. It's a sacred obligation to us, concern for the planet. It's, it's a matter of Christian faithfulness. And it begins, Wendell Berry says, as we cultivate a sense of reverence for the earth. And so I want to give just four really quick practices that all of us can do. Many of these are things we already do, but maybe if we'll engage them intentionally, they'll um, cultivate reverence. First of all, observe Sabbath, first and foremost foremost. Take a Sabbath day where you just give the world a break for, for a day. And instead of making it produce for you, just enjoy it. The beauty of the earth and how, how good it is to be alive in this world. Just delight in it. Try to get out of nature and cultivate a sense of reverence through Sabbath. That's one. Two, grow something. Flowers, food. I mean, there are limits. There are things you shouldn't grow, but even though it's legalized <laughs> most places, but grow something. I tried to always be growing something, and I'm terrible at it. I can kill almost every, anything. 
under my care. And this is teaching me something about the world and <laughs> what problems I might have. But whatever you got to do to get your fingers in the dirt, try it. Um, let soil and plants become your teacher. Wendell Berry has this quote that I love. We learn, he says, from our gardens how to deal with the most urgent question of the time, which is how much is enough? Our gardens are, can be our teachers. So even if you're bad at it, like me, try to grow something. So observe the Sabbath, grow something, practice simplicity. This is just um, living on less, paring down the complexity of our lives. Just whatever simplicity means to you, apply that to different areas of your life and see if you start to learn a little bit about enough. And then lastly, learn. Learn, learn, learn. Like become informed about what's happening in the world with the use of the land. Learn about the role of the land in the Bible. If you want to get it, when, um, when, uh, Walter Brueggemann has a great book called The Land. It's, it's a fantastic study of the, the idea of the land in the Bible. Learn about land use here in Kansas. Um, I grew up in Salina with Wes Jackson in the, the um, conservation center he built there. I learned a lot about the use of the land. It's, it's, it's an important question here in Kansas. Wendell Berry says this, and I, I, I repeat this to myself all the time. There are no unsacred places, he says. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. All places are sacred unless we have desecrated them. That's another way to say it. There are no sacred and unsacred places. All places are sacred or desecrated. We could, use, we could do with more sacred places and fewer desecrated ones. I really think Christians should be leading the way on this. Not, again, not as a matter of politics, but as a matter of stewardship and as a matter um, not of guilt, you know, but out of a sense of reverence for the world and the gift that is and the role that it plays in our ability to fulfill the human vocation. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we do give you thanks for the beauty of the earth in the story of Naboth and his faithfulness and what happens when we um, yield to those who would lead us toward exploitation of the world. We just confess that we do sometimes feel powerful here or powerless here to do any real change, to make any real difference. But would you lead us toward a sense of reverence for the, for the earth, the part that it plays in the story of redemption? We thank you for this idea of reverence and pray that you'll be building a sense of reverence um, for us and for each other and for the world. Amen. I invite you to stand now, and we're going to receive communion. The way we do this um, at Redemption is we just come forward, each of us, the ushers will release us row by row. We'll be offered um, bread and
a cup in these little COVID safe containers. And um, they'll say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can say, I will remember, or amen, or respond however you feel comfortable. And then head back to your seat and open it and receive it. Um, We do this because on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. And after he he broke it and shared it with his followers, he said, "Um, eat this bread, my body, that is broken for you in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he did the same thing with the cup. He passed it around, blessed it, passed it around. They all drank from the same cup. And he said, "This, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, a new deal between you and God. He said, whenever you get together in my name, eat this bread, drink this cup, remember you have a new deal, new deal between you and God and that somehow you're receiving my life into your life. I want you to feast on my life, be made out of the stuff I'm made of and then head out into the world and, and image me, right? Icon me to the rest of the world. Be salt and light wherever you go. So he said, every time you gather, do this and, and that's why we receive communion now. So I would invite you to join me as we pray a blessing on the table. Lord, we ask your blessing on this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace, a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside us. Make us new from the inside out. And then send us out into the world to be salt and light. And let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. To the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you from the Holy Spirit. One God, now and forevermore. Amen. Will you come?